was a grove, untouched through long centuries, whose interlacing boughs enclosed cold and shadowy depths, the sunlight banished far above. It was sacred to no rural pan, no Sylvanus king of the wood, nor to the nymphs. But gods were worshipped there with savage rites, the altars piled high with foul offerings and every tree drenched in human blood. On those boughs, if ancient tales, respectful of deity, may be believed, the birds feared to perch. In those coverts, no wild beast would lie. On that grove, no wind ever blew. No lightning bolt from the storm clouds fell. And the trees, spreading their leaves to the absent breeze, rustled of themselves. Water flowed there in copious, dark streams, while the images of the gods, rough-hewn and grim, were merely crude blocks cut from felled trunks of trees. But their very age itself, and the ghastly color of their rotting timber, struck terror. Men feel less awe of deities in familiar forms. Their fear increases when the gods they dread appear as alien shapes. They also say that subterranean caves often shook and roared. The yew trees fell and then rose again. That flame glowed from trees free of fire, while serpents slithered and twined about their trunks. The people never gathered there to worship. They had abandoned the place to the gods. And when the sun was at its zenith, or night's blackness seized the sky, the priest himself dreaded those moments afraid of surprising the lord of the wood. This grove Caesar ordered felled by the stroke of the axe. Growing near his outworks, spared by earlier wars, it stood clothed in trees among hills already bare. But now strong arms faltered, his soldiers awed by the solemn majesty of the place believed that if they struck the sacred trees, their axes would rebound to sever their own limbs. Caesar, seeing his soldiers paralyzed and afraid, seized an axe and was the first to strike, daring to fell a towering oak tree with its blade. Driving his axe into the desecrated timber, he cried, any sacrilege falls on me. Now none of you need fear to strike. Then. All the men obeyed his orders, their minds still uneasy, their fears not assuaged, but weighing Caesar's anger against the wrath of heaven. Lucan, Pharsalia, The Civil War, Book Three. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. (sighs) 
What an evocative and cinematic quote there in the intro. That is a ancient Roman poet describing what sounds like a, a basically an abandoned uh, Celtic um, sacred site, this old grove that's been grown over. Caesar, already, Caesar has already conquered them long ago, and now he's cutting down their ancient grove. I mean, how haunting. And, and uh, I want to say a big thank you to uh, Ancient Music Ireland for letting us uh, play some of their songs today. Um, when you start reading about the, the ancient Gauls, which you'll hear in this podcast, those are the early Celts in mainland uh, Europe. There's a lot of accounts of them having this giant horn called the Carnix that they would play on the battlefield. Um, what you heard in the intro, there was a, um, when I spoke with Ancient Music Ireland, uh, there were no Carnix in Ireland, um, but that but what you were listening to were Bronze Age horns and Iron Age trumpets, I believe. Um, but wow, I mean, what a sound. Can you imagine hearing hundreds of those horns blaring over some vast landscape before an immense battle? Haunting stuff. So big thank you to Maria Cullen O'Dwyer, um, the co-founder of Ancient Music Ireland. Um, you'll hear three pieces of their music today on this episode. One is called Introduction, The Butterfly, and Lilting Horns. I put links to all those in the show notes. If you like this kind of music, you can help support their incredible project with a, trying to um, recreate these, these, this old music. Um, you can find them on ancientmusicireland.bandcamp.com where you can listen to some of their songs and buy some to support um, and all the links are in the show notes. So today's podcast guest, what an honor. I mean, I love every one of my episodes. I love all the guests, but this one I was even a little nervous getting into because uh, Philip Freeman, author of uh, Ancient World Studies, um, I have been reading his books, uh, two of them on, on Celtic mythology since Christmas, and uh, one on Greek mythology I've been reading for the past decade. So to have him on the podcast, to be able to, for him to dedicate an hour and, and a half to um, just describing uh, the Celtic world um, and mythology to me, I mean, what an honor. So Philip Freeman is the professor of humanities at Pepperdine University. Um, I'm going to read his biography. He completed his undergraduate work in classics and humanities at the University of Texas, earned a joint PhD in classic and Celtic studies from Harvard University, and um, he's the author of a number of books on ancient and medieval studies, including biographies of St. Patrick, Julius Caesar, and Sappho, as well as translations of the works of Cicero. So for this episode, we're mainly going to stick on Celtic mythology. Um, there are three books of his that um, I reference, and I put links to them in the show notes if you're interested in buying one of those and uh, supporting his amazing writing. I really think he's done such an awesome job of bringing uh, the full, I mean, numinosity since podcast is our newest nature, really capturing the spirit of and um, the unadulterated versions of these 
potent myths. So uh, the ones we mainly talk about on the podcast is Celtic mythology, tales of gods, goddesses, and heroes, and Celtic spirituality, an introduction to the sacred wisdom of the Celts. And um, if you have already been very interested in the Celtic world, then you might know a lot of today's podcast because I really wanted it to be like a one-on-one episode. Who were the Celts? Who were the Gauls? What was life like for these people? Um, And then we get into some of the mythology of the early Celts and then the Irish mythology, uh, which was kind of the the last holdout of the Celtic... um, Celtic culture, et cetera. Um, but if you don't know anything about the Celtic world, well, then I think you'll really enjoy this one. Um, if you want to know more of the history, uh, I say it on this podcast all the time. I'm not particularly interested in the big wars of history and the big uh, shifts of power and kings and emperors. That's not really what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in daily life. I'm interested in how people thought and more and more, I'm interested in st- spiritual beliefs throughout history. Um, if you want more, just like a full-on history lesson on the uh, the Gauls, especially, um, there's an amazing six-hour podcast by the great Dan Carlin. He's got Hardcore History. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. He has a six-hour episode called The Celtic Holocaust, which is all about... Caesar's war on the Gauls, um, basically annihilating enormous numbers of people. Some of the Celtic heroes that came together, like uh, Vercingetorix, pretty epic guy. And uh, and on there, there is a good amount of kind of background information on who the Gauls were. Um, okay. Well, like always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Let's get into uh, some quick thank yous over on Patreon. I want to say a big thank you to Sophie McVicker, who is the new Patreon patron. And let's see, at the highest uh, tier, huge thank you to Jess Paget, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michelle Alderson, uh, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Gweckner, uh, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waterlight, and the working class woodsman and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much. You're really helping me out here. Um, so I'm still battling, uh, back going back and forth whether to keep doing these remote ones. Um, I obviously I feel that there's a magic that can only be captured when I do them in person. Um, obviously the quality audio quality is always going to be better doing them in person. And yet I feel pulled by these different topics. Um, you might notice on the last one, I said, if I'm going to keep doing these long distance episodes, I'm only going to talk to guests who are, uh, I was thinking I'd kind of focus in on Europe. Well, I've already lied to you because, uh, Philip Freeman is in California um, by now you should know that, uh, I'm a Pisces. The symbol of the Pisces is two fish swimming in opposite directions. So if I say one thing, I'll probably end up doing the opposite. So, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is the podcast has kind of opened up to reaching guests anywhere. 
And um, yeah, we'll see. Maybe I do 50% in person, 50% long distance, because there's just so many topics that I really want to find uh, specialists like Philip Freeman today. Okay, so for today's reading, we're going to read one of the myths from uh, Freeman's book, Celtic Mythology, Tales of Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes. And this is The Adventure of Konla. Um, of course, forgive me if I'm not saying, if I don't pronounce some of these names the right way. And this one, of all of them in the book, um, this one really moved me. Um, something about it. And we discuss it later on in the podcast. Thank you so much. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Kanla of the Red Hair, son of Khan of a Hundred Battles, was with his father and with his men at Ushna in the center of Ireland one day, when he saw a woman in strange clothing coming toward him. Woman, where have you come from? asked Conla. I have come from the land of the living, said the woman, where there is neither death nor evil. We enjoy everlasting feasts there and have joy without strife. We live in the great she, and thus are called the people of the she. Who are you talking to? Con asked his son, for no one except Conla could see the woman. He speaks, said the woman, to a beautiful young noblewoman, who will face neither age nor death. I have fallen in love with Conla of the red hair, and I invite him to the plains of delight where the triumphant Baruch rules forever in a land without weeping or sorrow. Come away with me, Konla, and you will never die. When he heard what the woman said, Khan turned to his druid, Corin. I beg you, Corin, stop this deceitful woman from stealing away my son with the magic of women. The druid then sang a charm against the woman so that no one could hear her voice and Konla could see her no longer. But as the woman was fading away, she threw an apple to Konla. For the next month, Konla wanted no food except the apple, which grew no smaller, no matter how much he ate of it. Then a great longing seized Konla to see the woman again. A month later, as he was walking with his father by the sea, he saw the same woman coming toward him. Konla sits at the high throne of the ghostly dead, she said to him. He waits fearfully for death. But those who dwell in the land of the living bid you come to us. When Khan heard the woman's voice, he called for the druid. Khan of the hundred battles, said the woman, do not rely on the magic of druids, for soon a man named Patrick will come to this land who will prove their teachings false. Khanla, my son, said Khan, do not listen to this woman. I love my people, father, said Khanla, but longing for her has seized me. Come away with me, Conla, said the woman. Leave behind your struggles and cares. Away we will go in my crystal boat. There is another world, more beautiful than this land of shadows. It is far, but we can reach it by nightfall. Then Conla ran away from his father, went with the woman into the crystal boat on the shore. Con could only watch in sorrow as his son sailed away across the sea, never to be seen again. Thank you.
I'm sitting here this morning. I am at Pepperdine University in beautiful Malibu, California, looking out the window of my office at the Pacific Ocean in the distance. Well, that's not bad. <laughs> it's beautiful here. And I saw you were in Iowa beforehand, so big change. I was. Yeah, I was in Iowa for, uh, about seven years ago, and then I uh, came here to the West. Very nice. Very nice. Well, to get started here, I wanted to publicly say thank you for writing these incredible books. Oh, it's my pleasure. The So when you wrote, Oh My Gods, A Modern Retelling of the Greek and Roman Myths, I probably got that right when it came out because it was probably on one of the, uh, when I lived up in New York City, it was probably on one of like the, uh, you know, forward facing stands when you walk into a bookstore. And that yeah, was my yeah. first, and that was, that was my first time reading mythology as an adult. And so I was probably in my early 20s. At this point, I kind of just had the mythology, the vague awareness of it from elementary school, which is kind of just like watered down and kind of like it's it's so I was stunned when I read your book and you, it's a modern retelling, but yet you've written it in a really beautiful English. And I was kind of stunned by like the incredible amount of violence and sex. And it's like, wow, this is actually extremely intriguing. And, <laughs> and, and something yeah. I've said a bunch on, on this podcast is through my reading of fairy tales, getting into mythology again, um, I have a deep appreciation for Jungian psychology, which is all very interested in archetype and mythology. And it's sure. something I say over and over again, is this, this stuff isn't for little kids. No, it, it's, that it's was the everybody. whole point of, yeah, that was the whole point of writing the Oh My God's book is that I had been teaching classical mythology to college students for years, and they all came into it, uh, you know, having read children's books in, in mythology, maybe having read uh, Edith Hamilton's wonderful book on mythology that was written half a century ago. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's all great, but uh, mythology is, whatever else mythology is, it's a reflection of real life. And real life can be very scary. Uh, and so uh, when I wrote Oh My Gods, I wanted to show Greek mythology as it really is, which is uh, incredibly violent and uh, incredibly unfair. The gods are not uh, usually good guys uh, in, uh, in Greek mythology. And so I wanted to show all of that. Uh, and uh, I think it, it, you know, hopefully it, it doesn't take away anything from people's um, uh, impressions of mythology, but hopefully adds to them and makes it, uh, makes it even better. Oh, without a doubt. So, you know, one of the major staples of the Jungian psychology, Jungian interpretation is the shadow, which is kind of like everyone's dark side. So it, to me, it was refreshing to see that, oh, wow, there's this incredible dark side to all this mythology. And this is the real version. It's like, this is what makes it a great piece of storytelling and literature and wisdom is it's has just as much of the darkness of real life. Absolutely. I mean, whether you look at classical mythology, Celtic mythology, uh, it always has the dark side. There's always shadows lurking in the background or sometimes not in the background. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a difficult, violent world that uh, we live in, that our ancestors have always lived in. And uh, we've always been afraid of the, of the darkness and, and uh, walking through the woods alone, I think, for, uh, for good reasons. There are scary things out there. Oh yeah. Well, I've now I've become a woodsman. So over the course of years, I've become feeling more and more comfortable in the woods. But um, 
Let's. So I feel like for today's episode, um, I think let's kind of because I've read two of your books recently and been rereading them all weekend. While the Greek mythology is incredible and a lot of people are aware of a lot of the Greek mythology, I thought for today's conversation, we'll kind of stick to the Celtic. How does that sound? Sounds sounds perfect. So I thought, so if I were listening to this podcast 10 years ago, I would have, and, and I'm someone who has very strong European ancestors. My mom is from Belgium. Um, so I would go visit my Belgian family every summer. My dad lives in England. Half my family is in England, my English side. So uh, the land that they're on, it would have probably been the, where a lot of these Celtic things would have been happening. I know in Belgium was the Belga, the Belgay tribe or something like that. So exactly. I thought to start to start this, um, let's go start at like 101. Who were the Celts, when and where? The Celts were a group of people, uh, you could call them a group of tribes, I suppose, who, in, uh, who inhabited a great deal of Western Europe, uh, starting from at least around 1000 BC. Uh, they spread uh, all over uh, Europe, from Spain to Italy, uh, up into uh, the islands of Britain and Ireland. Uh, they uh, made their way over a bit into Germany and then uh, down also the Danube River. And some of them even crossed into uh, Turkey uh, in the area that uh, comes to be known as the uh, Galatia. So uh, the Celts uh, were a group of people who were uh, spread over this enormous area in Europe. They were the dominant group. They were never an empire. That's an important thing to know about them. They weren't like the Roman Empire. They were uh, very much tribal. So uh, any group of Celts uh, would have uh, thought of themselves as belonging to a particular tribe, not as the larger Celtic um, whole. But the, the Celtic, the reason we group them all together is for the very good reason that they spoke uh, very similar languages. They spoke a Celtic language, which in some ways is is not all that different uh, in, in its earliest form uh, from Latin. Uh, but uh, they also uh, had common religion. Uh, they had common gods. They uh, had uh, a priesthood called the Druids. Uh, they had just common cultural features. And so in the age of uh, before the Romans, before Julius Caesar conquers the Gauls in the first century BC, the Celts were the dominant cultural group all over Europe, uh, Central and, and, and Northern Europe, uh, up uh, above the Alps into Germany just a little ways, and certainly all over Britain and Ireland, which is where they survived. Uh, after Caesar conquered Gaul and after the Romans moved into Britain uh, in the first century AD, then uh, the, the Celtic um, languages, the Celtic people, the Celtic religion, the Celtic ways were diminished, certainly, except in Ireland uh, and Wales uh, and in up in Scotland. Uh, that's mm. where, where the old Celtic ways uh, survived and survive still. Uh, the, the, the Celtic languages uh, are still alive in Wales and in uh, Scotland uh, and in Ireland uh, and in Brittany. Uh, down in uh, the peninsula in France. And, and so uh, the Celts are uh, both were in the past tense, but they are very much still around. So just to be extremely clear, when you said the Gauls, the Gauls were the inland Celts, yeah? So of France, right. northern the Gauls Spain. Are, 
the Gauls are a subset of the Celts. They're the Gaul, they're, they're the Celts who are living in what's basically France, but also Belgium. Uh, but but it's easier sometimes just to think of it as France. Uh, so they were the, the mm. group of Celts who were living there in the area of modern day France. And um, and so that one of my er- question early questions for you was going to be. Um, what language did they speak? But you already kind of got into that. And and what tied... So when I first started reading about the Gauls, and I've heard it kind of... Um, I've heard it kind of spoken about how I'm about to say it right now from other people as well. Is it is it kind of like how we would say um, the... Um, I would say Native Americans. Like, what does that really mean? It's actually a huge amount of different tribes with different right. customs. In, 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 in a way, it almost is because... Because when we look at Native Americans, absolutely, they were a a tribal society. There was never a Native American empire spread across North America. But uh, the ancient Celts, uh, although tribal like the Native Americans, were much more uh, closely related to each other. You have uh, in Mm. in North America, you have a, a huge number of different Native American languages that weren't related to each other at all. The uh, Algonquins and the Navajos and the Cherokees and the Choctaws were were all, uh, you know, different people. But the ancient Celts, although they were tribal and they were independent of each other, did very much share a common language and culture and religion and mythology. Okay. Very fascinating. Okay, great. I wanted to know that. Now, um, what? so what was kind of like... Th- what we the little that we know so the little that we know is is basically from um the romans coming along and taking notes of them and caesar um what so what was their like just daily life like before we get into all the mythology and whatnot were they more it seems as though they were more of a farming agricultural culture as opposed to hunters like what though you have in your book you have a few hunting stories uh what was kind of like their life like well, the ancient Celts of Europe were uh, absolutely farmers, uh, but then again, most uh, pretty much everybody was in ancient Europe anyway. Uh, but they were not uh, people who lived in cities like the Romans or the ancient Greeks did. Uh, they lived in villages, they lived in towns, sometimes they lived in forts on tops of, uh, of hills, but pretty much everybody was a farmer uh, in the tribe. Uh, the tri- all the tribes were led by a king. Uh, and uh, a king is kind of a grand name uh, for uh, a group of people who might be a couple of thousand uh, people in the tribe. But uh, the king, the chieftain, however uh, we want to describe him, uh, he was always a male. Well, let me take that back. He wasn't always a male. He was most often a male, but there absolutely could be female leaders uh, among the Celtic tribes. Uh, they were a warrior society. Uh, again, pretty much everybody was back then because it was a dangerous world. But the ancient Celts valued war. They uh, they uh, valued warriors. There was nothing greater uh, for them to than to go into battle. Um, they were a, a a people who were farmers, yes, but they were also uh, they were also great fighters. Something I've seen that's kind of equally as uh, as um, exciting in the warrior world like that is the collecting of the human heads. Is that something yes. that is is actually uh, archaeologically true. I mean, there are old accounts yes. that the the warriors would keep um, a chest full of heads. Like yes. so, I, like I told you, I'm a I'm a hunter now. So you know, we eat a lot of the meat, but I've had certain critters taxidermied. Our house is filled sure. with with skulls and uh, turtle sure. shells and um, furs. And so, would it have been totally normal to walk into a Celtic warrior's home two thousand? 
you know, or more years ago. And to just have them present you like I will do, I'll say, Hey, come look at this turtle shell. Like, Hey, come look at this human head. Check out Absolutely. this. Egg. They wouldn't have let you leave until they'd shown you uh, with the, uh, the ancient Celts, there were great warriors. Uh, and if they conquered an enemy, if they killed an enemy, uh, they honored that enemy in their own minds by cutting off his head and preserving it in, uh, they, they say cedar oil. Uh, is the way they did it. They had a big jar and they preserved this head uh, and they would uh, show it for years afterwards uh, to anybody who came by because the head was thought, as in a, a lot of cultures, to be the, the center of the consciousness, the human consciousness. And so if you could, uh, it, it was not a way of, of shaming the enemy at all. It was a way of almost participating in his strength. Uh, to, it, was a, it truly was a way of honoring your enemy was to, to show off his head imagine being able to walk in the past and see that and it, to be totally normal. <laughs> yeah. Totally incredible. And uh, just a little more on the, on those old, like the old Gauls and whatnot. Um, what was their clothing mainly wool from their, were they sheep farmers? Was it yes. like, what was their clothing made of? Cause you see these old depictions and they're wearing like early versions of flannels and, and. Uh, oh yeah. That, I mean, they, they, yeah, it was wool, uh, pretty much all wool. Uh, cotton was something that didn't grow well. And, you know, they, you know, a few rich people might have had some cotton. Uh, a few extremely rich people might have had some silk uh, that they imported. But mostly it was wool. Mm. Uh, and, but the thing about it, uh, it was plain wool, but they loved colors. Uh, and archaeologists have, have uh, uh, confirmed what the ancient authors write about is that the Celts loved colors and checkerboard patterns. And think of Scottish tartans and, uh, uh, you mm -hmm. know, different uh clan uh, 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 images that are used in different sorts of uh, uh, clothing. Uh, that's what ancient Celtic uh, clothing would have looked like. It would have been bright, and beautiful, uh, and, and full of different colors. I love it. I wear a lot of similar patterns today, so I just wonder how that all relates. And I know that some of their greatest heroes, uh, the real-life people like Vercingetorix, had grand mustaches, which I, too, have a big mustache. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so so I yeah, often and they wonder. Loved the, yeah, and and what'd you say? They loved what? Uh, they loved um, they loved mustaches. That was any Celtic warrior had a big <laughs> bushy mustache, and they would strain their beer through it. They were big beer drinkers, not wine drinkers, and uh, and they also almost almost everybody had a, a gold torque, which is like a gold necklace. Anybody who could afford it at all. Uh, it's one of the, the best ways of spotting Celtic skeletons, actually, if you dig one up mm. and it's wearing a torque. Uh, so that, um, yeah, so they, they love jewelry. They love bright clothes. They, uh, the men love mustaches and they would, you know, plaster their hair with lime sometimes and make it spike up. Uh, they would uh, do all sorts of things. So amazing. And and I think at the early accounts of the Gauls, they would fight naked, they would fight naked wearing their torques. I mean, formidable. Yes. Yeah, they would fight naked. Some of some of them would, you know, just to show their bravado, which is probably not the best way to fight, uh, but uh they would do it anyway. And then you have the whole other uh class of people that were these druids. We got to hear about some of those guys. So you had the warriors <laughs> and then you had the druids. 
Right. The Druids are a fascinating group. The, the best way to think of the Druids is to think of them kind of as a priesthood. Think of them like uh, like the Brahmin priests of India. Uh, they were uh, not necessarily uh, hereditary Druids. I mean, the Druids very often were from the same families, but anybody could be a, a member of the Druids if they applied themselves with enough time and enough study. Uh, but the, the Druids were the religious leaders of the ancient Celts, uh, and they studied for many years. Caesar said they studied for up to 20 years to be a, a, a Druid. They were the people who performed the sacrifices, but they were also judges. Uh, they were poets. Uh, they uh, were the, uh, the the people who were the leaders of, uh, of, of Celtic religion and, and not just religion, but culture uh, as well. Uh, the Druids could be um, either male or female. We we do know about female druids, uh, so it was certainly a, a priesthood that was open. Um, the druids did not fight, uh, but the druids were tremendously respected. Um, the, the, the druids, any druid from whatever tribe, could step between two battling armies and call off a battle, call off a war, and nobody would ever dare to touch a druid. It would just be unthinkable uh, to do that. So they had mm. a very important uh, role in, uh, in, ancient, uh, in ancient Celtic society. Now, now, would they go to a certain place to study? Because, you know, I'm, we're going to get into it, but it seems as though they didn't have churches. They didn't have cathedrals. They they worshipped. It seems as though they were much more of a, a nature worshippers, and their sacred places were these sacred oak groves. So where would the druids? Where would they go to study? Well, they were absolutely uh, a, a, a people who uh, did not have. I mean, they actually uh, archaeologists in in recent decades have discovered. I wouldn't exactly call them temples, but maybe religious centers uh, made out of wood. Mm. Uh, but they nothing like the the Greeks and the Romans had. When you look at the Parthenon Temple in Athens, they had nothing like that. Uh, they uh, worshipped their gods. Uh, they do mention about uh, worshiping an oak groves. Oaks were very uh, important uh, to the Celts for, for reasons that aren't really uh, terribly well known, uh, but they uh, did worship outdoors. Um, they, um, when Caesar says that uh, Britain uh, what we think of as England today was sort of the center of where people went to study uh, the, mm. the ways of the Druids. Although uh, I'm sure that there were many uh, who, who didn't go to Britain. They could have studied locally uh, if they'd wanted to. Uh, but they uh, they were not a people of, uh, of buildings. Uh, they were a, a worshippers uh, of oak groves is, is the main thing we know about, sacred groves of trees. Is there um, the oak is a symbol that kind of appears in many places, but is there any particular reason why the oak was so revered? You know, people have tried to figure that out, and there's some ideas. Uh, oak uh, is a very hard wood, uh, and uh, among other things, uh, I've read that it attracts lightning strikes more than than most trees uh, do. And uh, you know, I, I I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Uh, oaks are certainly the acorns of oaks were uh, thought of as uh, you know a, a food source, uh, and you know people mm -hmm. can eat acorns if they need to, and certainly they're animals. Uh, so the oaks were thought of as a very nourishing sort of tree. Um, also mistletoe, which was very important to the Druids, this parasitic plant uh, grows especially well on oak trees. So all of those reasons may have contributed mm -hmm. to um, the reasons why. 
Yes, I've um so in moving to the country about 6 years ago I felt kind of called to pursue hunting and one thing you quickly learn is here in North America the oak is is uh for a hunter is very important because it attracts so much wildlife. Um everybody's eating it, the squirrels, the deer. Um and then as you say a lot of listeners here are into herbalism and foraging and people today are even making acorn flour which you can bake with just and you know they sure. would have been doing that for for since time immemorial now now while we're on the oak groves let's get into some of the real uh kind of wild stuff so i've heard people say that that maybe these sacred groves would have been surrounded by heads on pikes i've read there's one roman uh account that the, there's this haunted oak grove where the where the wind um doesn't there's no wind and yet the leaves move there's no sound in there it, it's uh there's blood smeared on the trees i mean what you got you got any wild stuff to say about some of that <laughs> yeah i do actually uh we have uh reports of celtic human sacrifice from a number of different ancient ancient greek and roman authors and here's where it gets really tricky because you have uh, especially roman authors who uh, were conquering the celts uh, and so it was to their advantage in some ways to portray the celts and the druids as these terrible horrible bloodthirsty barbarians uh just uh, as we well we see this all around the world in all periods of history mm -hmm. whenever a uh, an imperial force wants to conquer a land the first thing you do uh is denigrate them and say they are mm -hmm. subhuman they are you know they they do all these horrible different things and the romans did that too but having said all that i think it actually did happen uh human sacrifice really did happen among the ancient celts but I think it was uh, it was something that was actually quite rare. Uh, it wasn't like you know, oh, today's Tuesday, it's time for a human sacrifice again. Uh, mm. we, we have some sources that say that uh, you know that these special prisoners may have been kept for five years uh, and then sacrificed. So I, mm. I, I think a, a, a better impression was yes, human sacrifice did happen, but it was uh, a fairly rare occurrence. And it wasn't always necessarily uh, war prisoners. I mean, that's the sort of thing that, that mm. did happen. But uh, there is some pretty good archaeological evidence that uh, people uh, would willingly give themselves up to be human sacrifices, including the Druids themselves. It was seen uh, by some, at least, as, as, a, as a great honor. Uh, because uh, one of the very important things to know about the ancient Celts and religion and mythology was that they believed in reincarnation. Uh, they believed that everybody would come back again. Uh, they say after a certain time, they would return again to human form. They didn't talk about coming back as an animal, uh, but they talked about coming back uh, in human form. And so that there was this uh, there, there was this shadowy sort of uh, waiting place or other world, I guess you could call it, where, where souls went to, and then they were reborn in time. So uh, this was, among other things, very useful uh, if you're trying to leave an army uh, against an enemy uh, saying you know come on boys uh, let's fight if you die uh, don't worry that's not the end uh, you you will come back because in the in the ancient greek and roman world the the views of the uh, of the afterlife um, i mean they varied but for the most part it was just sort of a dark dismal place where you just wandered around forever uh, it wasn't good it wasn't bad but it certainly wasn't attractive but in the Celtic way of looking at death, uh, death was just a passageway to a new life. I, I kind of have, on this podcast, I've interviewed people with 
with pretty extraordinary uh, stories about afterlife and some people have very vivid accounts of what they interpret as their past lives. More and more, I'm starting to really believe that the the Celts were onto something with some of that stuff. Now, um, now in, in your book, Celtic spirituality, I mean, when they did sacrifice people, I mean, it's pretty intense. I mean, talk about what you wrote about, um, how they would divine the future from a sacrifice. Yes, it was, uh, it, it was, and it's pretty gory and pretty violent. Uh, when these sacrifices did happen, the Druids would, uh, stab a, a person, uh, in the, in the torso. Uh, and then they, they say from the squirts of blood, uh, they would be able to, uh, divine the future, uh, and to tell the future. And so, uh, it was a, uh, it was truly would have been a horrible, gruesome thing, uh, to watch. Uh, but it, it certainly happened. And, and again, we always have to put this in the context of, you know, Julius Caesar goes in uh, into war and kills, uh, like in Gaul in, in eight years, he killed about a million people. Uh, so this was a world in which violence and death was absolutely everywhere. So to have an occasional rare human sacrifice, you know, you, you have to, it, it's best to, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to excuse it necessarily, but I'm just saying, you know, we, we do have to put it in the proper context. Of course, it's of its time. I mean, and the Romans, yeah. it's odd that the Romans thought it was so deplorable because weren't the Romans just crucifying enormous amounts of people and, you know, sticking them on sticks in the middle of the road? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you have thousands of people, uh, you know, who are, are, are crucified, you know, probably every uh, week in the Roman Empire, you know, outside of any town, there would have been crosses with criminals and slaves who were being crucified. You go to the Colosseum uh, and you would have seen shows in which mm. people were uh, killed for entertainment. And yet they took, they chose to take great offense uh, at the Druids. It's uh, it's uh, something we're all guilty of. We are, are very good at being offended by uh, the, the things in others and not so much ourselves. Mm, of course, of course. Now, something I kind of, I didn't find in your work, but I found elsewhere. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on it. Um, what's up with this, the Wicker Man thing? You can find old illustrations of it. Um, you know, today we have this very popular festival, Burning Man. I've never been there, but it's like a giant... <laughs> It's like a giant statue, which is then burned. But in these Celtic times, yes. supposedly, they might have filled a giant human figure, wooden human figure, with some of these captives, sacrificial right. captives, and then lit the whole damn thing on fire and burned them alive. Is that is there truth in that, or is that folklore, or what? Well, it, it is stories told in more than one source uh, that we have from mm. the ancient Celtic world that, yes, that really did happen. Again, it was a rare sort of thing. Uh, they talk mm. about uh, having uh, animals uh, and people uh, put inside these these wicker men, these wicker figures. And I'm not a structural engineer, but, you know, it wouldn't really work very well uh, to, to probably make a human figure out of it, you know, tall and it wouldn't mm. be very common. But uh, probably some sort of a of, of, of a of a straw structure, and then to set that on fire, yeah, uh, that does seem to have really happened on occasion. Uh, that is, I mean, Buck Wild. Can you imagine if you could uh, if you could visit the past, you would, could see some absolutely mind blowing stuff. Yeah, um, I think it would have been gruesome, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, burning people alive in the Celtic world or having, you know, naval battles in the Colosseum in Rome. And just, it, mm. it, you know, it's it's one thing I tell my students is it's hard for most of us, you know, living in North America, for example, in, in the, you know, 2023, to think about just how incredibly violent the ancient world really was. Mm. Yes, 100%, 100%. And, um, 
Well, you started getting into reincarnation, and, and like I mentioned, it's that's a topic I'm kind of endlessly fascinated by. In your um, book, of both in your Celtic spirituality and your Celtic mythology book, you you do um, retell a actual myth about reincarnation. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Tuan? Yeah, Tuan. Uh, it's a it's a great story. Uh, in in the ancient Celtic sources, and when I talk about ancient Celtic sources, I mean Greek and Roman times. Uh, they talk about reincarnation and the belief in reincarnation. When we get to the medieval Celtic times, where most of our mm. stories actually come from, like the story of Tuan, uh, then we have these wonderful stories of people being reborn. And Tuan is just a is a is a beautiful story uh, of of this man who comes to Ireland. He's one of the first settlers of Ireland and all of his his fellow travelers his fellow settlers end up dying he turns into an he's an old man he's all alone he's scared he's lonely but then he turns into an animal he turns actually into several different animals he turns into a deer he turns into a pig he turns into an eagle and then he turns into a salmon uh, in the end so he's uh, he, he gets reborn and all the while watching uh, the history of uh, of Ireland and the settlement of Ireland uh, unfolding in front of him. It's a it's a beautiful story until at the end of the story he meets Saint Patrick. I loved that one. That was one of my favorite ones in your book. And I, I wonder about stuff like that. Again, I mentioned that I have become a hunter in the past five years. I sometimes wonder when you take the life of some stag buck. You know, d is that soul going to like in your Celtic story is that soul going to reincarnate in some future person? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really it's an interesting idea. The evidence, you know, like so much of the ancient Celts, our evidence is not complete. We don't know, you know, they only talk about people being reincarnated. They never talk about animals or, or people going into animal bodies or anything like that. I mean, whether they believe that or not, you know, we don't know. But they did believe that people were reborn as people in the future. Now. I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we're getting into the uh, me the medieval Celtic world. Um, just to kind of maybe cap off the the old world with the Gauls and whatnot. Um, so who? So the introduction to your books, you kind of have the old gods that we know extremely little about and are have some regional names, but we're kind of named uh, with the the Roman names. Um, so. One of the ones I first became aware of is the stag-headed, um, horned one, Cernunos, that was you know yeah. banged into some ancient cauldron. Uh, so I really find that guy very intriguing. Um, so, so what what are a handful of those ancient gods that we we know so little about? But what do we know? Well, what we do know about the ancient Celtic gods, the gods from the Greek and Roman times, uh, is that they were, in, in many ways, like Greek and Roman gods. Uh, Celtic, uh, uh, the Celts were a polytheistic people. They believed in all sorts of different gods. Some of these gods stretched across the Celtic world. Some were just local, again, very much like the Greeks uh, and the Romans. Uh, they uh, were similar in some ways to gods that we have in the Roman pantheon. Uh, the, the Celts talk about uh, this god named Lugus, L-U-G-U-S, who was sort of the chief gods, kind of a Zeus, kind of a Jupiter figure. Uh, but uh, the, the, he was actually much more, uh, the Romans 
say he was much more like Mercury. Uh, he was much more uh, of, a, of a craftsman, of a traveler. Uh, and so uh, they, had, they had certainly different emphasis uh, for their, their different gods. Uh, they have uh, a wonderful goddess, uh, Cernunos, you named, of uh, this uh, god who seems to be uh, half animal or at least part animal, a god of hunting, a god of nature. Uh, they had Epona who is a, uh, a Celtic uh, horse goddess. The horses were very important to, uh, to the ancient Celts. They had mother goddesses. They have a goddess named uh, Matrona. They had just a, a great many different kinds of gods and goddesses. Uh, as I said, some of which seem, or, you know, the names survive in inscriptions and references all over the ancient Celtic world, and some of them are, are very localized. And I guess what's so un so unfortunate is I, I kind of went into your into your books like so hoping to hear the story of Sir Nunos and stuff like that, but there's just not these stories didn't they were obliterated, right? These they old were. the early that gods they have no stories left. They, that's the saddest thing. We just have these references to them and an occasional uh, reference about how, oh, this God required all sorts of bloody sacrifices. And, but they never tell the stories. Uh, but fortunately, this is where we can, you know, uh, in the medieval Celtic world, these gods sometimes survived, or at least reflections of them survived, so that we have we have the ancient Celtic god Lugus, but we have an Irish god named Lug, who seems to be, and, and certainly appears to be, very much the same god. So uh, it's a tricky business, but we can look at those medieval stories and try to look backwards uh, and reconstruct what some of the ancient stories might have been. But uh, but you're right. Uh, for the most part, they are all gone, and it's so sad. I, um, you know, Archaeologists are always finding uh, tablets and things uh, about that, uh, you know, sometimes written in ancient Celtic languages. And my great hope is that, you know, someday they'll find like a Rosetta Stone or, or something, uh, or, you know, wonderful that, that tells the story of of one of the ancient gods in some lake or in some bog oh yeah <laughs> um so okay i let's now get so i guess i was surprised i guess i had a vague awareness my whole life that when you talked about celtic it was always had to do with england and ireland and stuff like that and now i understand why by reading your books and that's because uh, I guess places like Ireland were remote enough and isolated enough that they could hold on to the old stories. But, and yet, so while the medieval Celtic is really kind of like Irish mythology, is that, is that, I'm still trying to figure that part out. It's we partly. Just, it, yes. I, I mean, the reason uh, it survived Celtic mythology, culture, language, it survived best, I think, in Ireland, because Ireland was never conquered by the Romans. It was a separate island out there in the Atlantic Ocean. But it didn't just survive in Ireland. Uh, Wales uh, is uh, in mm. the western part of Britain. Uh, you can go there today. It's a wonderful, it's a great place to visit. I re recommend to anybody. And it actually preserves the living language of Welsh, this ancient Celtic language, better for the most part than Irish uh, is preserved. Uh, so uh, Ireland absolutely was a place where Celtic stories, Celtic myths survived, but it wasn't just there. It was also uh, in Wales, uh, but also uh, in, um, in up in Scotland, up in Gaelic Scotland, uh, and also down in that little peninsula of, of Brittany, 
uh, sticking out of France because you had actually a bunch of uh, Celtic refugees go there uh, at the end, at the fall of the Roman Empire. And so uh, it survived uh, to a lesser degree in those places, uh, the Isle of Man uh, as well, uh, Cornwall. Uh, but uh, Ireland uh, is uh, uh, Ireland and Wales. Let's you know, let's, let's put them both in there. They are our best sources for uh, Celtic mythology and stories. So, are those different languages? Is that because I know it's Gaelic, I guess. Are. But are those three? Yeah. Okay, but are they're different yeah, versions? If you, if you try speaking Gaelic to a Welshman, uh, you know he won't understand. Okay. Uh, the, the, but they they are both Celtic languages, but they've you know, evolve from each other. It's, uh, you know, like, uh, okay. like English is, is related to German, but it's, you know, aside mm. from the few words, it's really hard to understand. But, uh, 2000 years ago, it would have been, mm. they would have been very similar languages. So, so they both grew out of the, the common Celtic language, but, uh, over the many centuries, uh, they turned into different languages. And the Scottish version is also its own variation. Right. The Scottish version actually is a version of Irish Gaelic. The uh, the Scots that we uh, the Scottish language, Scottish culture, uh, most of it uh, comes from Ireland because that was another group of mm. people who migrated at the end of the Roman Empire from Ireland mm. up to nor the northern part of the island of Britain. That's why Scottish Gaelic and and, and Irish Gaelic are so similar to each other. Man, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, and so, and then we, so one assumes in your studies and people in your world assume that the Gauls were speaking something kind of similar. Yes. Uh, in fact, we have uh, a number of inscriptions that were written in the Gaulish language. And so uh, people are able to go back and, and, you know, by studying it, read a lot of it uh, and to understand because they can reconstruct it from Welsh and Irish. And so they can figure out what is going on. So, yes, uh, the Gauls were speaking an older form of the Celtic language. Mm. So neat. Now, before we get into the the, the Irish mythology, there, um, one of the craziest things in in your book, on your book, Celtic spirituality and an introduction to the sacred wisdom of the Celts, you have this wild uh, little chapter about the ancient Irish horse sacrifice. <laughs> I mean, that is crazy. I mean, can you yeah, say well, a little something on that? Sure. I'm, I'm presuming this is a family show, so I'm going to be a little delicate about it. But uh, No, but no, yeah, you can uh, say anything you want. Oh, okay. Oh, right. It's not necessarily well, a family show. You can curse me to do everyone. <laughs> what happened uh, in, in Ireland, there's a, there's a, a great story of, of, of this Irish horse sacrifice that takes place in, they said, in a remote part of Donegal, which is up in northwest Ireland. And this is a, a horse sacrifice that happened when a new king was crowned. Uh, and so this seems to be a very, very ancient uh, ritual that actually has uh, relates uh, in many ways to a, rit a ritual that happened in India, ancient India. They probably come from the same ancient Indo-European uh, uh, religious uh, cultural uh, uh, area. So anyway, what happened is um, a white horse, and the white is important uh, because white was a sacred color among uh, the ancient Celts. Whenever you uh, have an, a white, you have many stories about like you're out hunting and there's a white animal 
that comes along. Mm. Well, when that happens in a Celtic story, you know something magical is just around the corner. So you take a white horse uh, and then uh, the, uh, you lead it around and you the, the king or the, the man who is going to be king has sexual intercourse with the horse. Don't ask me for all the details. I don't know exactly how that worked, but uh, he has sexual intercourse with the horse because the horse is a symbol of the land itself. And so the joining of the horse and of the new king uh, is a way of, of, of showing that the, the king is uh, the, the, the new occupier, the new uh, man who relates to uh, the land. And then after that happens, then they cut up the horse and everybody shares in a great feast. And the, and the king actually uh, climbs into a big a cauldron of of of, of soup <laughs> made out of the horse parts, and it's a it's a really wild uh, story. But um, there's very good reasons for thinking it it really is true, uh, and that it is an ancient ancient coronation ritual uh, among uh, the, the Celts. Absolutely, buck wild, and that was uh, in your book. You kind of cite the the I, I think maybe 1100s or something. You uh, you cite yeah. someone had witnessed this and wrote it down. Yes, a guy named Gerald of Wales, who was a a, a, a priest, uh, and uh, he hated the Irish and was a great prude. Uh, and so he, he's writing about this ritual and saying, this is absolutely unbelievable, ungodly, obscene. Uh, but then he goes into great detail and talks all about it. <laughs> of course, of course. He can't help himself. I mean, can you, again, can you imagine seeing some of this stuff from the past? I mean, that would have been just stupefying to see that. <laughs> that would have been it, it, yeah it's you know again uh, you know it was a violent world but it was also a world very much connected with nature in the natural world everybody was a farmer uh they you know people ran around sometimes you know naked and they weren't particularly offended by it like you know like we might be today uh and you know animal reproduction all of that that was all just routine uh for them and so uh they were um, I, I guess earthy might be a, a better word uh for for describing uh, you know the ancient celts and and just um for for clarity um you know today we just think of horse as a domestic animal but the horses horse were native in europe i mean I, the ancient yes um you know cave people the neolithic people were hunting horses so i guess over a period they became the domesticated horse of all these absolutely. people absolutely yeah, yeah, the uh, you know the people would would occasionally eat horses, and of course, you know, when a horse had served its usefulness and was done, and, and for battle or farming, um, the horse was eaten. Mm, yes. So, um, so another thing in one of your books was these uh, these. So you wrote about these. Well, I guess let me back up a little bit. When when I imagine you writing these books, or the, at the very beginning of the process. Are you like going over to some museum or collection or library and with white gloves sitting there over some <laughs> thousand year old book and translating from like dead or dying languages into modern On English? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Oh yeah, on occasion I am. Uh, like the uh, the Celtic mythology book, I wrote a lot of it in the National Library in Dublin, uh, which I definitely mm. recommend everybody go to sometime. Uh, but I, I wrote most of it in libraries, looking at uh, old texts, sometimes uh, in Irish or Welsh or Gaulish or, or sometimes English. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's what I do, and you know, try to collect this vast amount of 
literature together and to put it in a in a book and and you know when I write these books I um, I write them for the general public for for just you know anybody who's interested but I always try to think of my students uh, you know try to think of college students uh, and when I'm when I'm writing them so I try to set the tone that that it would you know work and so they're they're kind of like a college classroom if you will uh, think of like a continuing education college classroom where people who are just interested come together and uh, um, it's worked pretty well I've done you know I've talked about these books in uh, I've offered courses for adult education non-credit courses on it and uh, you know people people love Celtic mythology and you've done such a great job at, at uh, like I said earlier, at, at um, rewriting this for the modern audience, but still in, in a very beautiful way. So are you sitting over like a like a 500,000-year-old book that's <laughs> one of a kind, that's like a illuminated text on a piece of animal skin? You know, the old vellum paper, isn't it? Scan on occasion, skin? yes. Uh, yeah, it is. It's made out of a, a sheepskin, usually. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, on occasion, I, I am. Uh, you know, something from uh, a thousand years ago. But most of the time, the librarians don't like you to sit there and look at those for hours. So they'll say, you know, mm. here, here's some photographs of it. <laughs> mm. uh, so, uh, okay. you, know, you know, especially if you're like drinking a cup of coffee, you really don't want to be near that man <laughs> for very long. So, uh, but yeah, uh, there have been, uh, there have been a number of occasions where I've used the original manuscripts. And um, just like when I've looked at uh, classical mythology, you know, looking at ancient papyrus. Uh, but yeah, uh, most of it is <laughs> written in uh in libraries yeah and so what languages are you uh translating from latin obviously and then latin yeah latin uh greek uh because there are some really important sources on the ancient celts written in in ancient greek uh but also Mm. irish uh, also uh welsh which i'm you know i confess i'm not as good at welsh as i am with uh with some of the other languages but also uh ancient celtic languages like gaulish uh, you know, I, I try, I look at the Gaulish and, and try to read it. We all try to read it. Uh, nobody understands it perfectly, but, uh, but yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I do try to draw on the original language sources whenever possible. Well, if the Gauls were kind of wiped out um, by Rome and they were not a writing culture, what is that Gaulish then? What that is Gaulish, uh, well, it's it survives. Some of it survives before the Romans took over, but some of it does come from um, the centuries after the Romans. There's uh, there's some in the first century A.D. Uh, there's some writings in Gaulish. There are some uh, uh, curse tablets. Uh, there are some uh, dedications that are written in in like sacred springs. And so the Romans didn't come out and you know come into Gaul and say you know we're we're wiping out your language and religion. Uh, that that was one of the genius uh, things about the Roman Empire is they had no interest in making everybody into little Romans. Uh, they didn't even mm. care if you spoke Latin or not. They wanted you to pay your taxes and not cause any trouble. Uh, and if you did that, mm. you know you you could worship you know giant elephant gods if you wanted to. They really didn't care. Uh, so uh, the the Celts. Uh, you know, they they gradually faded away, but honestly, it was uh, of their own volition. Uh, they uh, mm. they decided it was advantageous to learn English to integrate themselves into the Roman system. Uh, so, uh, you know, Celtic languages survived for a few centuries uh, in Gaul, uh, but then by the time of the end of the Roman Empire, like about 400 AD, um, it was it was pretty much all gone. Mm. So the ancient Gauls did have a written alphabet and and language. They did. Yeah, they did. Okay, I didn't uh, realize we, we that. Have, I thought it was all oral. We, no, we don't have much. 
Uh, and uh, Caesar talks about the Druids definitely being oral. They, they, you know, they, they insisted that the teachings were never written down. But there are uh, documents that come from, uh, you know, I mentioned these curse tablets. These are actually fascinating. You, uh, you have uh, curse tablets written by, say, a group of women uh, in Gaul about a hundred years after Caesar had conquered it, and they're, they're, uh, they're. It's a religious. And we don't even we can't even understand like this particular curse tablet what's going on, but they are they definitely seem to be cursing somebody, uh, which is something that happened a lot in the ancient world. Is you would have curses like especially you know old boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, whatever enemies. Uh, you know you could write a curse for them, and so um, we do have some ancient Gaulish writings that have survived, but not very many. Now, where were those cursed tablets found? Because I know you had that in your book. Wasn't it like down in a lake or something? Right. They uh, Lakes and springs were, were very mm. important, were sacred to the ancient Celts. And so you will very often go to a spring and you will find like an old altar that's fallen down. Uh, so these, uh, these lead tablets were rolled up and they were thrown into the lake or thrown into the spring. And so archaeologists come along 2,000 years later and they find them and they dig them up and um, and then they try to read them. So incredible. And you, um, you included two of them in your book. And I, sometimes I wonder every once in a while, I'll dabble in reading just, you know, old religions, a little bit of the occult. And sometimes I get scared to even read some of the texts, like I, like an ancient <laughs> spell. So I've been wondering for you, were you nervous to write down the spell in your book? <laughs> some ancient 2000 year old well, curse. I mean, it does give you chills, you know, sometimes to read this and, and to think this wasn't all, you know, happy uh, unicorns and rainbows. This was, uh, these are some serious uh, curses uh, that these people had about, you know, about, you know, dropping dead and things like that. So it's not exactly like it's a handbook of magic, but um, there are elements of that uh, in it where, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it could be, it could be a little bit scary uh, to read some of this stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So let's get into the Irish Celtic gods. So what what we know of. So it seems. So one thing that surprised me is it it's like wasn't quite as clear of a pantheon as like the Greeks or the Nordic gods. Like you have like sometimes when I was reading your book, I was like, are these? I was like, are these people? Are they gods? Like yes. is this a clan? It's a little bit a little bit more kind of murky but you do it seem is. it does seem to have this family or people uh the two of Dananan, if i pronounce that right yes. of yeah. gods can we just hear a bit about just the pantheon of the gods and, and anything sure. like that well it, it's interesting you know that the ancient celtic gods from greek and roman times are very clear and very similar to zeus and hera and athena and all the rest of them in many ways but then we get to the medieval period and you're right these these gods seem to be more like demigods. They seem to be sometimes mm. like very powerful human beings. And I think that's mm. because uh, they've sort of gone through this Christian filter, if you will, because everything we have from medieval Celtic times in Ireland, Wales, and whatever was written down by Christians. And so it's been, it's been sanitized a bit and changed a bit. So they start, you have stories from 2000 years ago about, you know, gods who are powerful. Uh, and then when that's retold in Christian times, 500, 600, 700 years after that, they're turned into these sort of 
superhuman figures, kind of like, you know, Avenger, Marvel Comics Avenger people almost. Uh, and, and so they are, they, they don't, it's hard to tell sometimes who's a god and who's a person. But mm-hmm. uh, what we do have in ancient, in medieval Ireland and in medieval Wales for, for that uh, uh, point is a, a, a separate sort of what we call the other world, uh, which is a really important concept in uh, Celtic um, religion and mythology. There is this other world, which is sometimes underground beneath, in, you know, in one of these burial mounds. It's sometimes across the sea. It's sometimes all around us, and we can't see it. Uh, except when it wants us to, and so uh, it's a, it's a, it's absolutely mind-blowing, fascinating uh, concept uh, that there is this invisible world, and it's a world where the supernatural beings live that are that seem to be gods. They certainly don't die, uh, and human beings can cross into this other world and sometimes cross back. Uh, especially uh, there's there's a time of year uh, called Samhain. Uh, which just happens to be on October 31st, where the barriers mm. between our world and the other world are thinnest. And so um, Halloween, of course, is a survival of that. Uh, and it's a survival of this Celtic idea of this world of supernatural and perhaps monsters and, and danger uh, out there. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an amazing idea. You had a hand. That's probably my favorite part of your book is that um, section on the other world. So it sounds like... Um and back to uh, some of the back to some of the customs of the Celtic people, you had mentioned that it seemed as though communication with the dead was very much a part of culture. You, you wrote that um, people would even sleep at the grave of a hero or family to kind of get some information or communicate. And then it sounds like in the mythology, a lot of that other world contact is happening at these, you, you call them SIDS? Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, yeah, uh, S-I-D. It's a sheath. It's called the sheath mound. I mean, that's one thing ah. about, yeah, I know it's Irish is just absolutely insane as far as pronunciation. Mm. It's, a, it's a very strange looking thing. But but yeah, if you go to Ireland, um, or if you go to Britain for that matter, you can see these ancient um, burial mounds. These are Neolithic burial mounds from about 2000 BC or sometimes even earlier. Uh, this is probably before the Celts even got there. But these burial mounds become part of Celtic mythology. They become the entryway to the other world, uh, at least one of the entryways to the other world. So you go north of of Dublin to this place called Newgrange, which I, again, I recommend everybody go there. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, You'll see a whole bunch of these burial mounds, and that is a place where uh, you, you can enter into the other world, literally. And it very much seems in those myths that take place with the other worlds that there's there's very much a belief in in ghosts. Um, you have one myth in there that you included about like uh, dead prisoners, executed prisoners, and yet when some <laughs> yes. hero goes to interact with the dead prisoners, these corpses, well, the corpses are speaking and they ask for water. So it's very much a right. belief in uh, ghosts and 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 it's, one it's that, that kind of resonates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's that idea that death is not the end uh, in in Celtic mythology and in religion that there is something more, uh, and so you you do have um, in in Celtic mythology and tel- culture this idea of 
uh, you know, people being reborn, but you also sometimes have this idea of people, the spirit of people going to uh, a, an island in the West. The West is always the land of, of death. I think that's because the sun sets mm. in the West. So people are all, you know, it, 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 or like in the Lord of the Rings, where you have the elves who are always sailing off to the land of the West. Uh, it's that same sort mm. of idea. Uh, Tolkien, by the way, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a great Celtic scholar. Uh, and so when you read The Hobbit, when you read Lord of the Rings, uh, he is drawing very deeply on Celtic mythology, as well as classical, Germanic, uh, and other mythologies. But he, he was very good uh, at Celtic myths. And uh, you have one story in there, and I don't—I can't remember if she comes from in the West, um, but to me, it very much hearkened to kind of like the sirens of uh, ancient Greek mythology. You had this one about a king who's walking with his son and the king's yes. druid, and uh, a woman starts speaking to the son, but no one else can see the woman. And yes. then the young man kind of, after a period of time, even though the druid says, hey, 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 he ends up kind of disappearing and sailing off with this uh, unseen woman. And that one was pretty haunting. Like to me, I had this immediate reaction that it's almost perhaps can be kind of interpreted as almost like addiction, like drug addiction or something. Like you've been pulled by archetypal yes. dark, you know, feminine force right. that, of being pulled away by fantasy, pulled away by something that no one else can see, and you, you're pulled away from your family and never seen ever, ever again. Yes, it's uh, you know, it's it's an idea that comes up again and again, and you know, again, you have very often have these these other world women who uh, you know lure, draw, entice human men, and uh, usually it's fairly benign, but not exactly. Uh, and so it's a it, in the comparison to the sirens, I think is pretty good because um, you know in in, uh, in in ancient Greek mythology the sirens ended up eating people. Uh, we don't think mm. that happened in Celtic mythology, but uh, but still, uh, it's the the other world, the world of the gods, the world of the heroes is is a, a dangerous place for people. Uh, it's not only uh, you know, and, and if you cross over into it, it's tricky to come back. Uh, because things happen differently there. Time works differently. Uh, you have stories of people going into the other world, uh, and they think they've only been gone for a couple of days, but they come back, uh, and they've been gone 200 years. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it, it, the Celts are, I know nobody else from, from ancient and medieval times in mythology who plays with time uh, the way that the Celts do. It's almost like modern science fiction stories. Oh, yeah, that really struck me. The one you're talking about there that you included with uh, they come back, a group of a king maybe, and some, some of his men come back, and then the man steps off the boat onto the shore and immediately just dissolves into ashes because he's returned to the world of right. of normal or whatever, and he can't right. exist there. And the other people lost in the limbo of time have to just sail away. And that one's haunting. Do. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is. That's a, the voyage of Braun, which is a which is a great story. Um, have there been so? I kind of mentioned I had this kind of uh, intuitive response to that one story with the um, supernatural woman who uh, lures the man away. Um, have any of these stories um, connected to you on a personal level, like um, as a piece of wisdom, anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you all of these stories, uh, you know, the reason mythology 
survives, you know, whatever, Greek, Roman, Celtic, whatever, it survives because it speaks to us. It's a kind of natural selection because if it didn't speak to us, it would just disappear. The stories would never be told. And so all of these stories speak to people. And sure, they they, they speak to me uh, as well. I, I, uh, I think about, um, I was, um, oh, it was a few years ago. I was in December and it was cold and it was one of those rare snowy days uh, in Ireland. Uh, and I got on the train and I went to Kildare, which is about an hour, an hour west of Dublin. Uh, I was going to... Uh, to go visit the church of St. Bridget, uh, which is there. Uh, and uh, I did that. Uh, it was partly closed because uh, it was so cold. But then I, I walked uh, out uh, away from the town, away from the church, out to this sacred spring uh, that was beyond Kildare. And I was the only one there. Uh, and there, uh, the water was bubbling up and there was patches of snow around. Uh, and there was uh, a cross there uh, dedicated to St. Bridget, but there was also an altar uh, that uh, the remains of, of, of an older, a much older goddess uh, who had, you know, had been worshipped for thousands of years. And you, you go to a place like that and even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not a spiritual person, you you can't help but feel the echoes of of, of powerful spiritual forces. You, you 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 begin to see and hear, at least in your own mind, the many people who had gone there for thousands of years to to worship the goddess, the you know the pagan pre-Christian goddess, and then to worship Saint Bridget, uh, who in in some ways is is a goddess in her own right. Uh, and so yeah. It's a it's a it's a powerful and moving um, experience, I think, to go to Ireland or go to Wales uh, and to go to some of these places, especially if you can get away from the crowds and, and have a place to yourself. That's so incredible. I, I have thought more and more how um, potent it must be to go on a proper pilgrimage. Now, in any of your little little adventures like that in your studies. Have you, um, I'm always intrigued by the paranormal, ghosts, things like that. Have you had anything strange, numinous, bizarre happen in the likes of a place just like what you said? Oh, I wish I had a great ghost story to tell you. I really don't. But, uh, no, I think numinous, I I love that word. It's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great Latin word, numen. It's a, you know, the, the powerful supernatural forces, but, but yeah, I mean, like there at the, at the spring of St. Bridget or, uh, are going into this, uh, this mound, the sheath mound north of Dublin, uh, is, is something people can do. They can go on tours, but it's, um, a, a, a mound that was built before the pyramids, uh, and you go into this long passageway, and it's dark, uh, and you walk to the very end of it, and 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 there are the the, the remains of the graves of the people who were buried almost four thousand years ago. And uh, again, I defy anybody to go in and do that, even the most unreligious person, uh, and not feel some sort of a, of a numinous experience with it. Mm, I can only imagine. I mean, I've gone down into the catacombs in Paris and uh, I mean, I had a pretty intense reaction down there, just hair standing up, even tears coming and feeling like a energy. I mean, you can't, when you're, I mean, there, there are, there's no doubt there are hallowed places, whether they were built by ancient humans or whether it's a landscape, like there's no doubt. Yeah, sure. Now, so you told me on the phone that you, so you, the, school that you're a professor at is a Christian school and you personally are Catholic. How does all of your, how does all your, your clearly deep love and deep study of 
these ancient um, gods, these pagan religions, um, how does that uh, connect in any way with your own religious faith or practice or anything like that? Does it connect or is it just separate well, interests? Yeah, it does. Do you- no, I mean, it, it, in, in, to a certain extent, it is an academic interest. I could be, you know, interested in, 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 in you know, Tibetan butterflies and, and, and not feel a personal connection to it. But, but yeah, uh, I, I think all of this, uh, it, it really does. You know, I am, uh, I do teach at a, a Christian university, Pepperdine University is. It's got plenty of non-Christians here too. Uh, I am Catholic, and you know, I was, I was at mass yesterday. Uh, but uh, to me, when I study ancient religions, whether they're Greek or Roman or Celtic or, or from India or wherever, what really strikes me is the, is the universe, universality, I guess, for, a be, for lack of a better word, is the human condition is, is just universal. When I read ancient literature, when I look at ancient religious texts, I'm just overwhelmed with the idea of these people felt the same hopes and dreams and fears that I do, uh, that we're all in a really tough journey together. Uh, and the people 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, people who were in those caves in, in southern uh, France who painted the mammoths and the horses and all the rest, you know, they had the same fears and hopes and dreams uh, that we do today. And so when I look at Celtic mythology, Celtic religion, uh, that's what, what strikes me in my own spiritual life is, is this connection uh, that these people were in, in many ways like me. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something I felt in this, I didn't even really know why I started this podcast other than people would just tell me the most incredible stories. And then it kind of has evolved from there, but something I've been feeling more and more, and it definitely is the inspiration for talking to you is, uh, I heard this quote while watching a, a documentary about Merlin. And it said that, um, artists for artists and poets the muse of the past is essential in preserving the human soul and the more i learn about history the more i feel that like knowing what the celtic people believed and and like you're saying seeing the spiritual similarities like here i am 2000 years later and i have some notions about reincarnation so it, it i just i feel i feel very much that as um I feel in in um, the modern world as people are confused by cu- our culture, where we're kind of nervous about the future and technology. It seems to me very important and grounding to um, not just have a like academic interest in the past, but kind of really feel it, like really feel the things that how people had to get by. Um, religion the religion of our past etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean does that well absolutely i mean we you know oh absolutely i mean we stand on you know our, our lives are built on the bones of our ancestors you know we stand on the shoulders whatever metaphor you want to use you know we are a continuation just like our children and grandchildren will will go on from us and so you know our our, our struggles are, uh, are are the same. I mean, you know, our hopes and, and laughter and tears and all of it, uh, all throughout history. Uh, yeah, I mean, the past is is a foreign country. It's a different world. The Romans weren't like us. The ancient Irish were not like us in every way. But uh, you know, in many ways, they really were. 
Uh, and so I, I think it, it gives a, a great resonance uh, to, to our lives if we can you know, appreciate. You know, I'm looking out my window here at Pepperdine right now at the ocean and the hills and thinking that the Chumash Indians, the Native Americans, you know, walked these hills for, for many centuries before the Europeans, the Spanish ever got here. And they lived lives uh, that, that had all of the elements that our own have, you know, with family and, and fear of death and uh, mm. uh, joy at, 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 at children and, and all of the things. Uh, so uh, that, that helps me at least when I, when I study the past. Absolutely. Just, fe yes, feeling connected to the human, the timeless human experience, I guess. Yeah. And it must be interesting for you um, as a practicing Catholic to see how these pagan religions were Christianized and then to see, cause you started talking about St. Brigid or Bridget. Yeah. Uh, Bridget. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and Bridget, you yeah. know, that is, that is fascinating how uh, the old pagan religion kind of the evolution must be interesting to you. The evolution of, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's that same idea about uh, you know mm -hmm. the, the, the elements uh, that are in ancient religions, you know, are borrowed into Christianity. They're borrowed into Islam. They're borrowed into Buddhism. Uh, you know, we we all uh, again are you know, inheritors of the spiritual lives of our of our ancestors, just like the ancient Celts. You know, they adopted all of those Neolithic tombs that were built, you know, mm. by by people who came long before them. They adopted them into their pre-Christian religion. And so we take pre-Christian elements and we bring it into Christianity, for uh, for example. It's a it's a very normal, natural, and I think actually a pretty healthy thing uh, to do. Mm. Now, since you brought up that kind of um, a very deep uh, feeling experience at that, uh, what was it? Where St. Brigitte, was it at a, at a uh, old, is it an it old church? Spring. What is it? Uh, the, you yes, mean, yes. yeah, the, the spring. Yeah, I went to the church first, and then I went out a to the spring in the countryside. Yeah. Well, what? Let's hear a little bit about Saint Saint Bridget Brigid. How it? How, yeah, am Bridget. I saying it wrong? <laughs> Bridget. Yeah. Yeah. She was okay. a, a. She was a. a well, it's in, first you got to know is that there was a goddess in ancient Ireland before. Uh, you know, before Christianity came along, who was named Bridget, uh, and, and she shows mm. up actually all over the ancient Celtic world. Her, you know, Burgantia uh, is the older form, uh, and she shows up, and her name means the exalted one. Uh, and she was mm. in in Irish religion a, um, uh, a a poet and a medicine uh, a physician, and actually an iron worker as well. The Celts were really into iron working, and they saw something magical in it. Uh, and Bridget had two sisters who were also named Bridget, and so what you get is this uh, trinity, basically, of of these three Bridgets who are three, but yet they're kind of one. Uh, and so uh, you have this this older uh, pre Christian Celtic goddess, and then you have this very real Christian woman named Bridget who comes along. Uh, and uh, and so uh, who was you know absolutely remarkable woman who founded a monastery for men and women uh, in Kildare west of Dublin uh, in about the year 500 more or less uh, and so she was an amazing and real historical woman but over time uh, not so much time actually some of the older stories of the goddess Bridget get worked into the folklore about uh, Saint Bridget, and so uh, sometimes it's very difficult to separate them. So you get uh, you, you get stories about uh, Saint Bridget uh, doing things like uh, you know uh, being able to, to, to tame 
uh, foxes, being able to uh, hold a sunbeam still, things that seem very non-Christian, things that, uh, you know, that, that Jesus in the gospel never did anything like this. Uh, and so it's a pretty reasonable assumption, I think, to make that some of these were borrowed from the older myths about the goddess Bridget uh, that become part of St. Bridget's life. And uh, again, some people might get upset by that. They see it as sort of a, a pagan contamination, but it, you know, I think it's, I think it's fine. I think it's, you know, that's, that's what happens. It's, uh, uh, again, that universal element uh, that, you know, that all of us share, no matter what religious beliefs that we have uh, that stretch through time. Yeah, I think it's totally cool. I mean, just add so much more character. Now, was she venerated at this like mythological level in her time as a the person? It, I mean, very soon, very soon after her time, she was. You know, there okay. was uh, there there were shrines built uh, to Bridget, and there's a church built to Bridget, and so uh, yeah, uh, she was uh, she was venerated. It's interesting. Just this last. Uh, uh, Actually, last month, February first, is St. Bridget's Day, uh, and it became mm. a national holiday in Ireland for the very first time. Uh, so everybody got the day off uh, for St. Bridget's Day, <laughs> starting this year in 2023. Uh, so uh, the veneration goes on. That's so cool. I've been I've been kind of looking a, a bit at the saints, and uh, Saint Hubert is the one I've been kind of interested in with my family yeah. living in Belgium and him being the saint of hunting. So I, I think a lot of that, and I love. Um, I love, oh, you know what? This is bringing up, uh, bring, having brought up St. Hubert, you know, this brings up a question I could ask you. Um, something I'm absolutely fascinated in, on, in all chapters of history is like folk magic and folk medicine. Was there, sure. so St. Hubert is associated with curing rabies and um, the, I guess the archaeology is there actually people up until the early 1900s would actually use a piece of metal, which you would heat in a fire and you would place on a rabid dog bite to cauterize the wound. And supposedly wow. it may very well have actually killed the rabies huh. uh, bacteria if done soon enough after yeah. the dog bite. Yeah. Was, um, was St. Was, uh, Brigid or um, St. Patrick, were, were they associated with any type of um, medicine in a detailed way, anything like that? You know, I can't think of any specific stories where okay. they, you know, have a specific uh, cure or something. I mean, we do have that sort of thing in the older ancient Celtic uh, stories where we have druids talking about, you know, ways to cure different, mostly animal diseases. They were very interested in animal mm. and cattle diseases and, and eye diseases. Uh, they, they, you know, using mistletoe, for example, to help cure certain diseases, which actually uh, apparently works. I'm no expert, no doctor, you know, not recommending anybody go out and try this. But mistletoe is a poison, but if used in very small amounts, apparently can be helpful for certain things. And the Celts were aware of this. Um, I have got a lot of friends and a lot of listeners here are herbalists and whatnot. So they're you know, deeply interested in the medicinal properties in plants. So I find that stuff very interesting. And um, so you were talking about how um, St. Brigid was a real person, but also mythologized. When I was reading about some of the heroes in your Celtic mythology book, I was wondering the same thing. Are these real people? Are these like real family clans <laughs> that I'm reading about? Like, what is this? These heroes, who are they? Are they yeah. fictitious I mean, it's, characters? It's I think they're probably fictitious. When you take an Irish hero like Cahullan, who who's this great uh, Hercules-like hero, I don't think he 
probably ever existed, but there may have been, there certainly were people like Cuchulain. There were certainly great warriors. And so uh, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of these stories over time get, you know, get, get turned into something else. Uh, but, uh, but Bridget was real. St. Patrick was real. Uh, all, these people were all real, but, you know, stories grow up around them. It's like when we talk about, I don't know, uh, George Washington, for example, you know, he was a real guy, but there's all sorts of mythology that builds up around George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or uh, Betsy mm. Ross or whoever it, it might be. It's, it's a normal sort of thing to mythologize real people. Mm, absolutely absolutely especially with some of like the pioneer guys in america and whatnot they get they become very much superhuman demigods in their ability you know in their abilities and their heroic uh adventures etc oh absolutely i mean you know davy crockett uh killed him a bar mm -hmm. when he was only three you know <laughs> i don't think he really did but he was a real person <laughs> um so I guess we've been talking a good amount of time, but maybe um, could you, um, is there a particular myth that you could just, that you uh, kind of have set to memory that you might tell? Maybe one of the ones from the book. You know, the one we mentioned briefly before is the story of this young man named Nera, uh, N-E-R-A, and it's a great little story. It's, it's kind of the original Halloween story, and it takes place on uh, October 31st, what the Celts called Samhain, uh, this festival where our world and the other world come closest together. And they're all huddled together in a fortress uh, in uh, in Western Ireland uh, during this very terrifying night. And, and the king uh, there, uh, uh, a man named Alo, uh, he says, you know, I will give a great reward to anybody who goes out and ties a branch uh, tries a twig around the, uh, the the foot of this dead man that they, they executed the day before, and and nobody is going to go out on Sawan night. It's too too dangerous, too scary. Except Nera, uh, he volunteers and he goes out and he he's tying this uh, branch onto the foot of a dead man, and and then the dead man starts to speak to him, and this is what happens on Halloween. It's strange things happen, uh, and so um, the, the uh, they have a, a, a little uh, adventure where the dead man gets uh, Nera carries him around to get a drink of water and some other things. But then, uh, as Nera is going back to the fortress. Um, to collect his reward, he notices that there are warriors marching away from the fortress and they've burned it down, they've killed everybody. Uh, and Nera follows them into one of these sheathed mounds and he goes down and he uh, goes down until finally they come to this great gathering place and uh, the king of the underworld, the king of the Tuatha de Danann is down there and he, uh, he recognizes Nera and uh, he's mostly just annoyed that this human has come down into his world and so uh, he says, okay, you can stay for a little while and Nera has a, a romantic rendezvous with a young uh, other world woman and she gets pregnant and a number of things happen, but uh, uh, eventually he gets, um, he, he escapes back up uh, and he finds that 
uh, time working differently, uh, time has actually not passed. He's only been gone for about an hour. And so he gathers together all of his uh, his warriors and, and, and the king, and uh, and then they go back and have a war with the uh, the other world people. And uh, uh, Nera ends up staying down there for, uh, for, the, for, for the rest of his life. It's just, it's one of those wonderful crossing back and forth stories between our world uh, and the other world where time works different and everything is is different in this magical other world. So incredible. That's one of my favorite ones in your book. And, you know, <laughs> not not to get too off topic, but with all the uh, talk lately in uh, society about UFOs and aliens, you know, if that is real and if that has been part of our human experience for time immemorial, it would be like, you know, how would ancient people have described scenarios like that? It might be through mythology sure. like you just told. Like who well, knows? I'm sure it would, who knows? Sure it would. You know, those the anybody you know any aliens coming to visit medieval Ireland would have been seen as you know coming from the other world. They would have been creatures from this magical other world place. Mm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And then, like in that story, that it's like the end of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the the man leaves with them. It's like at the end of the story, yes. just called yeah. Narrow or Narrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Narrow. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I feel like we've kind of come to a conclusion here. This has been absolutely awesome. Uh, maybe uh, don't you don't have to say anything now, but it could be pretty cool in the future if you ever have some free time to do one on the Greek mythology books that you've written. But um, tell us a little bit about some of your books, anything you're working on right now. And obviously yeah, people can get them in, on Amazon or anywhere else. But maybe just say a little bit of sure. something about some of your written work so people could go check it out. Sure, you can find it on Amazon. You can order it through your local bookstore. I've written biographies of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, uh, Sappho. If you're interested in ancient poetry, uh, the, the great one of the great poets of uh, of the world was a woman who lived in, in ancient Greece. Uh, but I've also written on, on Ireland. I've written on Celtic mythology, Saint Patrick, uh, Saint Benedict. Uh, just go into Amazon or, or Google and punch Philip Freeman, and they should pop up. <laughs>